welcome to this episode of Midlife Men with me, Philip Briscoe. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Duncan Baskerin Brown. Duncan is a speaker, a Morris dancer, which we'll find out about, and also an author. So he's written books on indulgence. So his first book, Get Over Indulgence, is available, and he's got a new book out in December called Real Men Quit. Um, so, Duncan, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a bit of a chat. So the clue was in the title there. We're going to be talking about overindulgence. In particular, we're going to be talking about overindulgence with, with alcohol. And I know you've got your own story, Duncan, and now you work with people who, who perhaps overindulge. Perhaps you can start at the beginning. Ah, yeah, right at the beginning. Well, so I tend to start my story, as all these great stories do, at 4 a.m., looking into the mirror. You know, I'd, I'd had one of those days, I'd, I'd smoked too many cigarettes, I'd drank too much wine, they even put too much chilli sauce on my kebab. It was not going particularly well. So I'm staring into the mirror, 4am, my life's a bit of a mess, and I have this deep, profound realisation. Suddenly it hits me, absolutely nothing changes staring into the mirror at 4am. If you want to change your life, you've got to actually do something. You've got to start putting one foot in front of the other. So that was sort of the moment where I thought, right, I've got to do it. I've got to start putting one foot in front of the other. So I ditched the cigarettes. I stopped drinking. I even stopped eating kebabs. But, you know, I'm never one to do things by half. So I kind of got a bit carried away and I started to, to read a few books and do a bit of research and that sort of thing, which led to me training with the Easy Way Clinic, which is the world's most successful stop smoking clinic. I also did some high quality education with the Chartered Management Institute, Cornell University, I even did a course in a windowless room in Peterborough. And, you know, just by keeping putting one foot in front of the other, I, I, you know, I really have changed my life an awful lot. And that is all I do these days. I try and help people put one foot in front of the other so that they can remove the indulgence from their life too. So if you can take us back prior to that moment at 4am staring in the mirror, what, what was the lead up to your behaviours, you know, what was causing you to drink too much, smoke too much, lead a, perhaps, you know, you call it an unhealthy lifestyle? Yeah, I mean, I have thought about that an awful lot. And I would love to give you that kind of like really neat and tidy answer. But I don't think there is a neat and tidy answer. I mean, I guess a lot of it kind of started when I was at school. I, I was not well suited for school, you know, I mean... You can say what you like about the British education system, but part of its aim is to prepare you for employment. And I am unemployable, so they were never, ever going to work for them, was it? And I, I think there's a, there was also this kind of tension. that I, I'm dyslexic, so my spelling is not great. My handwriting is awful. I'm generally just a bit scruffy. But I also have an incredibly high opinion of myself. So I think I'm doing really, really well. The teachers think I'm doing really, really badly. It was never going to work out so well. So, I, you know, I had a tough time at school. And 
One of the things I did was increasingly start turning to use sugary, fatty foods as uh, a means of escape, as a means of coping with my problem. You know, it's like when a lot of kids are, are, are figuring out that point of independence and how they react with the world. For me, that was all about dairy milk. And at the end of the day, you know, dairy milk is a socially acceptable drug for a nine-year-old, isn't it? So uh, that's kind of how I got into it. But obviously, what you start to realize after a while is that you know salt fat and sugar stop cutting it and uh, stronger things come along so i got into alcohol i thought all my christmases had come at once you know it seemed to really help me with social anxiety it seemed to make me funnier seemed to make me more interesting it seemed to make the girls flock around me you know well <laughs> one or two of them maybe and it just kind of progressed from there and I, I, I kept drinking and I kept drinking more. It gradually increased over the years till I got to a point where it just, you know, it just wasn't fun anymore. How much were you drinking? So I was probably averaging about two bottles of wine every night. That wasn't equally distributed. I did have lighter days and, you know, the weekend was often a little bit crazy. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I very rarely drank before lunchtime. That's a Morris dancing thing. But, you know, I'd never get out of bed and drink in the morning. I generally, you know, I was working hard and I'd, I'd finish up, you know, I'd get everything sorted by about half eight, nine o'clock, and then I'd start drinking. And, what, and so you were drinking wine. How was that affecting you the next day? You know, were you able to cover it up? Were you, you know, were you functioning? Did other people realise... Oh, yeah, no, I, I mean, a lot of people who knew me at the time, they they can definitely spot a difference between me then and me now, but they wouldn't have been able to tell you that I had a problem with drinking. In fact, I've had people kind of like read the books and read the articles I write and listen to podcasts I'm on and go, that doesn't sound like you, Duncan. I don't actually believe you because that's one of the things with alcohol. You know, it's it's relatively easy to hide. It's quite a common thing. So most of the drinking I did was not with other people. It was at the end of the day, as I thought was allowing me to wind down. Of course, you know, it never really works like that. And, you know, I, I held down a job. I was actually quite successful. But I was never that good before midday. You know, I was all, all, always took a couple of cups of coffee to get started. Uh, if you, we had a nine o'clock start, I would probably be late, but I was still, I, I was good once I got going. So uh, I managed to kind of mask it really. And did you, you talked about this 4am moment where you realized that, you know, you needed to change. Were there any other drivers that caused you to think you know enough's enough i need to i need to stop yeah again you should never listen to anybody who tells you those 4am staring in the mirror stories i mean they are just a bunch of rubbish it's always much more complicated than that so there was a lot of intersecting factors for me i had some health issues i got gout right that is so jet set it used to be only kings and aristocrats that got gout but me, you know, normal guy from occupied Berkshire, I managed to get gout. And uh, that really, really hurts, by the way. And it's totally and utterly linked to alcohol and diet. So that 
that was kind of one of the things that was playing on the back of my mind. I was tired all of the time. I was quite lethargic. I thought that was just because I was getting on a little bit, but actually it was all the alcohol. But I suppose the other really big factor was I'd got married, had a wonderful wife. I mean, she's a bit weird and everything. You know, she eats chickpeas and does yoga and odd things like that. Didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't do drugs. Weird, as I say. Likes me. Very weird. So she was kind of like gently nudging me in the right direction. And like, I suppose it all kind of intersected at the point we were trying to have a child and my wife had a couple of miscarriages and those were, you know, those were very, very hard. And I didn't really know how to talk about it. So I just drank, which inevitably made everything much, much worse. And it, it kind of got to the point where in the back of my mind, it was becoming obvious that I had to make a decision and it was, what do I want from life? Do I want a child or do I want another drink? And thankfully I made the right decision and I have an amazing eight year old. Yeah. How old is she now? Seven year old daughter. So what, what were the steps then? I mean, I know there are lots of ways that uh, people go to, you know, try and try and help stop drinking, but what, what did you do? What worked for you? Yeah, so I used the easy way to stop smoking, which was developed by a guy called Alan Carr. That's not the comedian. That's the world famous addiction expert that no one's ever heard of. Anyway, I, I read his book. Oh, right. And, the easy uh, way to stop smoking. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it worked for me. Yeah, it's an amazing book. I mean, that's helped millions and millions of people literally worldwide to stop smoking. The easy way has clinics. Kind of like across the planet, fifty odd countries. So it's more it's more mental conditioning, isn't it? More- yeah. So I would call it cognitive realignment, but that's because I'm trying to sound clever. <laughs> it's basically it gets at your beliefs. It takes your beliefs about smoking and you know turns them around and then gives you a way of managing the thought process. And so I stopped smoking using that that process. So when it it became apparent that it was time to stop drinking, that was kind of where I went. And so there was a clinic. Was there? there No, I I, I just read um, Alan Carr's Easy Way to Control Your Alcohol. Okay, right. And honestly, I just, I remembered a lot of it from the smoking. And when I did read that book, the first time it was it was enormously influential on me in as far as it changed the way I thought about a lot of stuff. It was obvious that it could be applied to many different situations, not simply smoking. So I was already kind of part of the way there because I internalized and digested a lot of the information already. So did you find that you had to, well, you, you chose a different circle of friends? Were you still socializing with the same people when you stopped drinking? So I think that's a really interesting point. And, and, and there's quite a, a, a subtle kind of thing in it that I don't spend a, a lot of time with some of the people that I spent a lot of time with before. So I had friends who they were really were just drinking buddies. The only thing that we had in common was that we were heavy drinkers. And honestly, I really hung around with them because uh, they made me feel better. They made me feel like I wasn't you know, that bad in comparison to them. I was, you know, I didn't have a problem and it, it kind of normalized my drinking. That was their only purpose. We didn't actually have anything in common apart from alcohol. So I don't hang around with them anymore, but I didn't really make a conscious effort to avoid them. They just kind of naturally fell away because 
I, I didn't want to go to the pub simply to drink a lot of beer. I didn't want to just hang around with people where the main focus was alcohol. So I have a, a new set of friends who mostly that's come through business networking and self-development and things like that. And I just like spending time with them. And some of them drink, some of them don't drink. It, that's not really important to me because the activities that we do focus around being sober anyway. So it, it's that, that really isn't a problem with me. But then. <clears throat> But then I have a lot of friends who actually do drink quite heavily. And as you mentioned at the start, I, I am a Morris dancer and Morris dancers are noted for silly hats and large drinks. And a lot of them still drink heavily and I still spend time with them because I actually like them as people. And we have a lot more in common, you know, because I started Morris dancing because I thought it was a good excuse to drink early in the morning. But actually, once I stopped, I found I continued doing it because I like dancing. I like the guys I hang around with. I like being part of a tradition. I like being part of that community. There's so much more to it than simply the alcohol. In fact, it was never really about the alcohol. So, yes, my friendship circle has changed, but definitely, definitely want to get across to people. You don't need to avoid people. There is a school of thought that said you should avoid triggers. You know, what triggered me to drink alcohol? What was the biggest trigger? Probably my wife, but I didn't want to get divorced. So <laughs> yeah, don't avoid triggers. Just learn how to manage them would be my advice. So it's interesting you say that, you know, you it's about the people you're with and actually realizing that, you, you know, you find people interesting, you have a, a connection. How much do you think you need to understand yourself in order to stop drinking? Oh, yeah. And so self-awareness and being sober, I think, go hand in hand. What I've noticed, and I have interviewed a lot of people since they've got sober, what I've noticed is their, as their sobriety progresses, their self-awareness tends to increase. I think you clearly do need a level of self-awareness, but I've never met somebody who drinks who doesn't in the back of their mind know that it's a problem and they need to do something about it. Most of the time, they're just not sure what to do, or they've tried things in the past and they haven't worked, or they've internalized the message that, you know, stopping drinking is really, really hard and it's going to involve pain and suffering and white knuckles and things like that. So I think most people have got the self-awareness to stop drinking. And as you progress along the road, as you put those feet in front of each other, it really does. It, it, it helps you to understand yourself. I mean, Personally, I write books as a form of free therapy. And that's a way that I really have started to, to understand myself and my journey and why I started drinking and, uh, you know, what was, what really helped me not just to stop, but to stay stopped. And so now you are helping people with their, you know, with, with their overindulgences, as you call them. So how, how did you make that decision then to, to decide to, you know, start to kind of work as a you know, kind of practitioner. So I've been involved in communication, broadly speaking, for my whole life. I mean, like since I could talk. But I've always, I've always written, and I've always been involved in public speaking, one way or another. I was quite involved in politics when I was younger, and that obviously involves a lot, a lot of speaking. I ended up working in coaching and training, part of the NHS, and you know that 
helped me to develop the skills that sort of naturally helped me to pivot into a more kind of therapeutic session, therapeutic um, area, and to, to use those coaching and adult educational skills to help people to change their behaviours around alcohol, smoking, diet, lifestyle. So when people come to you now, and you've talked about your, your experiences, how do you help them you know, recognize that, you know, because a lot of people recognize that they probably shouldn't drink too much, but it's pushed to the back of their heads and they just think about the next, you know, the next time they might have a, have a drink. How do you get people to realize or admit to themselves that perhaps they're, they're overindulging and they need to change, you know, their, their behavior? I, on, honestly, I, I, <laughs> that usually comes out in about the first 15 minutes. You know, you, we just talk about how people drink. So I, I have like proper diagnostic tools that, uh, you know, I've got tons of evidence been created over the last 30 years, you know, tested across the world. You know, I've got great diagnostic tools, which will, you know, classify your drinking as either dangerous, hazardous, moderate risk or low risk. And that is a good starting point. But Mostly, if you just chat to people, you get quite a good sense of of where their drinking is, and they start to fairly quickly realize that you know they they aren't drinking in the way that they'd want to or that that there is definitely something amiss uh, most most people come to that conclusion you know pretty early on in the process I guess they wouldn't be coming to see you unless they thought that there was something. Wow, you say that. I mean, for the most part, yes, people are willing volunteers, as it were. But occasionally I meet people and I, look, I, when I talk to people in general, I say occasionally I meet people who have been, you know, coerced to come by their family. But let's face it, it's always men and it's always their wives. <laughs> So I meet guys and they come along and, you know, in the back of their mind, what they're thinking is, I don't really have a problem. I don't really need to change, but I'm getting a lot of grief. And if I just go and talk to this idiot for an hour or so, I'll be able to convince him that I don't have a problem. And then I can go and tell, you know, my wife that actually it's all all right and I don't need to do anything. And Duncan says I'm fine. And, you know, in general, those are sometimes my favorite people to work with because they, they do, they're not really like out and out aggressive and, you know, they're just a little bit defensive. But once they start to realize that, you know, we ain't so different, <laughs> like I genuinely, I, whatever you have done, I have done something similar, something just as bad. Like I honestly, I've been there. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt. I just don't wear it because it's got kebab stains on it. So do, do you think there's, or perhaps you could talk about the relationship between, you know, mental health and their mental ill health, which is perhaps caused by, you know, dependencies on, on things like alcohol or yeah, drugs? Yeah. I mean, that again is, is an incredibly interesting subject because what you will find is that it depends whose statistics you look, look at, but 50 to 75% of people who have a problem with alcohol have a, another mental health issue. Now, let's say depression, for example, which is incredibly common. If you have depression, you go and see your doctor, you know, the, 
if they're very enlightened, they'll give you um, an antidepressant and they'll suggest some sort of mindfulness or CBT practice, which which is more much more likely to help you than the antidepressant. However, if you're taking an antidepressant, that is generally going to be one of these serotonin uptake thingy bobbies. That, so it works on your brain's uh, use of serotonin, right? So it's trying to increase that. Alcohol decreases it. Alcohol affects the way your your brain processes the, the serotonin. So if you're taking an antidepressant and drinking, drinking is effectively a pro-depressant, you know, so it has a massive effect. And I mean, for me, you know, I had a lot of very strong emotions when I was drinking and a lot of very strong, very negative emotions, which looking at it now and looking at the kind of the diagnostic and statistic manual definition of depression, I definitely, if I'd gone and talked to a doctor, they definitely would have said, oh, you're, you're depressed. That's what it is. So there, are, I, th I think that the two things often go hand in hand. And like, I'm not a medical doctor. You know, I have no qualifications, but I have met an awful lot of people who have other issues around their mental health that have improved dramatically when they have stopped drinking. So be that depression, anxiety, but also other kind of issues. There, there are, you will meet a lot of people who get diagnosed with ADHD after having uh, stopped drinking. So that kind of level of clarity and level of self-awareness helps them to go on and get that other issue treated. We were talking earlier actually about the relationship between you know, suicide or, or suicidal tendencies and alcohol and it was interesting what you were saying about the you know the relationship um, perhaps you could talk a bit more about that yeah so I, I mean men as i'm sure you and your listeners are aware are more likely to commit suicide than women men are also two to three times more likely to to have a drinking problem than women but the interesting statistic is that they are actually less likely to seek help so, so women are less likely to have a problem and more likely to get help. Men are more likely to have a problem and less likely to get help. And that's one of the things that contributes massively towards suicide. In fact, you know, men are much more likely to commit suicide after drinking than women are. So alcohol is often a factor in, in, in suicide. So I think, you know, it's, it's something that that is good because it is being talked about a lot more. I think, you know, as men, we are not that great at addressing our own problems. We sort of, you know, you can, you can go into the history and philosophy of it. I don't know. Maybe we've just had it a bit easy that we've, we've shaped the world's problems around our own problems. And now those, the, the world is being shaped in a, in a different way and that's great and that is positive but I think as men we do need to stand up and say there are some problems that affect men more than they affect women and alcohol is one of them and suicide is another and those two things are very much linked. And do you think there are other reasons about social reasons why men don't ask for help or don't discuss their you know their concerns their their issues? I don't know have you ever heard the idea that boys don't cry? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we we live in a world that is full of illusions of truth. And there are many illusions of truth about alcohol. The, the, 
just to to put it into the simplest possible terms, if you look at the motivational triad, you know, you're basically designed as a human being to maximize pleasure, minimize pain and minimize the expenditure of energy. And if you look at the delusions that are out there around alcohol, it how the world will tell you that alcohol increases your ple- pleasure. It doesn't. It will tell you it reduces your pain. It doesn't. And it will tell you the best thing to do is sit on a sofa after a hard day's work and drink a glass of wine, which is, of course, minimizing energy expenditure. So, you know, the illusions around alcohol go right deeply into our kind of evolutionary makeup. That And that, that, those those ideas that alcohol gives you pleasure, removes your pain and helps you relax. Those are so deeply embedded in our society, along with a lot of other deeply embedded ideas about masculinity and power and, uh, you know, controlling your emotions and being strong and not crying and not talking and not complaining and providing and all of those things, you know, they, I think they all kind of swirl together to create this storm where a lot of, a lot of men are in a, in a position of, you know, extreme toxicity you know it's there's lots of alcohol and lots of this kind of macho idea that you you can't ask for help so if you are listening to this and you have you know father brother friend colleague husband who you know you know is abusing alcohol perhaps beyond their control what can you do to help especially if somebody's not prepared to admit it or sees it as a, a sign of weakness or, or failure of some sort. I do. I, I would go a little bit further than that. I, you know, I'm pretty happy to to bet that everybody listening to this knows someone who's drinking too much. You know, whether uh, whether you're completely aware of it or not is another matter. But I tell people I help people to stop drinking, and almost every time somebody will tell me a story about Uncle Jeff, who's drunk so much he's turned his life to custard. You know, it's like literally everybody knows somebody like that. So what can you do? That's the that's a much more important answer. So I, it, it is really, really hard because your natural reaction when you see somebody who's doing something that is damaging them is to point out to them that it is damaging them. However, if you tell somebody that alcohol is killing them, it's going to cost them their job, it's going to cost them their relationship, that's going to ruin their life, all you're going to do is make them scared. And can you guess what drinkers do when they're scared? Yeah, they drink alcohol, don't they? So it, the majority of the approaches that people take to helping their their loved ones to stop drinking or indeed smoking or gambling or doing drugs or any of those kind of behaviors, they tend to be counterproductive. And I don't blame people for that. I mean, my mum is a great example of this. My mum loves me, no doubt about that. But she used to give me heaps about smoking. In fact, she if you ask her, she'll say, oh, Duncan's stopping smoking. It's the proudest proudest moment of my life it's like seriously mum i've written i've had four books published i used to be mayor of my hometown but the thing you're most proud of is me stopping smoking anyway so she loves me very much and she but she gave me a really hard time about smoking and drinking because she thought that was going to help but it never did it just made me scared just made me indulge in those behaviors more so i think the first and most important thing that i'd like to get across to people is like you know, try not to make it worse. 
You know, try not to, to put a lot of pressure on them because that will make it worse. What you can do is show them that there's another way. Most people don't stop drinking because they don't believe they can. But the great thing is there is so much stuff on social media now. You spend any time on Instagram or Facebook, you will see a lot of people who have stopped drinking and are living their best life and talking about it and sharing their stories. And that that is something that if you can if you can find a way of getting people so that they can they can see there's another way you can show them that there that that there is an option you know that is what what will help them and then you know gently push them in the right direction support them you know love them be compassionate that's that's the main thing i mean yeah you know what? We're human beings. We do occasionally need to kick up the ass. We do occasionally need to be told to stop getting in our own way. But in general, you know, just be kind and compassionate and more carrot than stick. And you mentioned, you know, you you, you took the kind of easy way approach and, and read the book. What other ways, you know, what other practical ways can people, you know, can people take who are trying to help? their their loved ones because i imagine sometimes it's a bit more difficult than just trying to reassure them and be kind because it may be that their behavior is having quite a significant impact on them as well and it, it might not be as easy so what what can they actively do then in that case yeah so there's i mean there are a lot of different paths to recovery but there are four kind of major ways that people tend to recover. One is through the 12-step tradition, Alcoholics Anonymous. That's pro that is definitely the most famous way of stopping drinking. They've been around for knocking on a hundred years. They've helped a lot of people. They have great advantages. You know, you get a ready-made community. It's a very holistic program. It, it helps you to deal with a lot of the underlying issues that will have popped up whilst you're drinking. So it's very good in some respects, but it doesn't work for everybody. I've met people who found it quite intimidating. It It is a it was started, you know, knocking on for a hundred years ago by straight white guys. And it has a little bit of the kind of privileged uh, idea about it. The first thing they ask you to do in AA is to um, give up control. And I've met plenty of people from the LGBTQ plus uh, community from different ethnic groups who uh, d it just doesn't resonate with them because the, they don't need to give up control. They never had it in the first place. It's also, it has a religious element which would put somebody like me off. So AA is pretty good. Uh, if you can get them along to a meeting, if you can just get them on the phone talking to uh, AA, you know, has lots and lots of free helplines. They're, they're conducted regionally, but if you can just get them on the phone, that is always a good starting point. Then there's cognitive realignment. That's the tradition that I sort of sit in. That's Jack Trimpey and Alan Carr. But these days there's a lady called Annie Grace who's really tearing it up. I love her stuff. She tends to resonate a little bit more with women than she does with men, but you know, her stuff is good. So there's a couple of books, you know, the, the easy way books or this naked mind is Annie, Annie Grace's book. Those, those are fantastic starting points. In fact, you know, if you're, if you have a loved one who, who has an issue, you know, buy one of the books, read it, get yourself educated. And cognitive realignment is, is excellent 
in a lot of ways. It's very quick. You know, you can do it in a few sessions. You can do it in a day sometimes. You can do it by reading a book. It's very quick. It's very effective. It deals with beliefs and thoughts. And then the actions kind of follow from confronting those beliefs and thoughts. So it doesn't tend to require much in the way of willpower. So it, it is a very effective thing. It has some disadvantages in as far as it doesn't provide you with a community and it isn't kind of ongoing. It is a once and done thing. Whereas for my money, sobriety uh, is about the journey. It is about continuing. It is about taking new steps. There's also, you can take a therapeutic approach. That's when you find a, you know, a therapist and you work on the trauma that underpins the, the drinking. Very good because it's very individual. It's very holistic. It will get to the root of the problem. It can be difficult to find the right therapist. That's somebody who you gel with, but also who understands addiction because some of them will say they do, but they don't. And it can also take a lot of time. And then the final way that a lot of people get sober is what I like to call natural recovery. That's people who just stop drinking. And it's more common than you'd think. My good friend, RJ, I asked him what method he used to to stop drinking. You just go, pain in the ass, stubbornness. So, you know, a lot of people do that. And it it, it can be hard because it can involve a lot of willpower. And it, you know... it can make you feel alone trying to do that, but it has some advantages because ultimately speaking, you get to build your own worldview if you do that. If you join AA or you get really into cognitive realignment or therapy, you're basically swapping a worldview around alcohol for a worldview around therapy, cognitive realignment or AA. So those are the, the kind of the, the four methods. Just, you know, try them is my ultimate kind of thing. You can go to AA for free. You know, you can have a, call with me and I'll explain my system for free. You know, you might be able to find it. Well, you can find low cost counseling stuff. You can find a lot of information about therapy online. Okay. Well, we'll put some, some links for, for people to look at after this. And so finally then, Duncan, you know, all great information and great advice. Just in summary, then somebody's listening to this thinks, you know, I don't want to be opening another bottle of wine tonight drinking it or I don't want to be drinking, you know, another six pack of beers and feeling crap tomorrow. You know, how do I, how do I stop? You know, what's a, what's a kind of quick, quick stop, you know, solution. Okay. Uh, So first and foremost, the fact that you've realized that is enormously important. That's the first step. And I think there's this kind of, I I suppose it's an obvious delusion that, you know, stopping is this thing that you do on one day, but it's not. It is actually a process. And most people, you know, there is a period of time where they could, you could say they are in the kind of like the, the, the phase of stopping. That is, of course, the, the first and most important, like step on your journey is, is to get into that phase of stopping. So by realizing that you have a problem and that that you want to at least do something about your drinking, that is the first important step to the what what i would do with people um is i would look at their beliefs so you have a lot of beliefs around alcohol and they underpin your actions and you never really think about them they're they're subconscious and what we do is we take them out into the light we'd have a look at them we'd examine them we'd see whether they're true we'd see whether they're useful and if they're not true and they're not useful then we'd wrap them in semtex shout fire in the hole and 
blow them to smithereens. And once you've kind of removed those beliefs, you're in a much better position. All you need to really think about then is managing the triggers. And I don't like the word triggers or cravings that much because we're just talking about thoughts. You have thousands of thoughts every day. Some of them are let's have a drink. And those thoughts can come from the there is a physical element to it. Most people who drink alcohol don't have a physical problem, um, but there is a physical element to withdrawal. I mean, most people say, oh, I've never suffered from alcohol withdrawal. So, yes, you have. That is technically what a hangover is. It is withdrawal from alcohol. So there is a, a small physical amount of it, but all it does is it, it makes your brain think, let's have a drink. But there's also a lot of associations like we talked about earlier. You know, certain people will make you think, let's have a drink. Certain places will make you think, let's have a drink. Meals, activities. So it's about managing the thoughts around those those triggers, those associations. Once you've learned to do that, then the actions will catch up. You know, the actions are the easy bit so long as you deal with the beliefs and the thoughts first. The problem most people have is they try and do it the other way around. They try and change the actions and hope that their thoughts and their beliefs are going to catch up. Do you know what? They very rarely do. Great advice. Thank you. And then just, just finally then, your book, Real Men Quit, is coming out in a couple of months. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so it's 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 a fairly comprehensive look at what you can do if you want to stop drinking. I mean, in essence, it it's that process that I just described. We we look at your beliefs, then we look at your thoughts, then we look at your actions. Um, but we do it with knob gags. You know, it's um, written in a relatively light-hearted uh, way. What I I try and combine a little bit of science. Don't worry, there will be no test. Uh, but a little bit of the kind of like psychological, neurological understanding of what's going on. Um, a little bit of my experience. You know, the stuff that I went through, how it worked for me. But also quite a dose of humour because do you want to read something boring? No, of course you don't. You want armchair macho and, you know, bad jokes. That's that, that that's what it is full of. Brilliant. Well, Duncan, thank you so much for joining us today. Really interesting. We'll we'll put a lot of the, the, the links that you referenced and a link to your your uh, books you can pre order in the on the website. But for now, thank you very much. No, well, thank you for having me. It's, it's been fun. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Midlife Men, where my guest has been Duncan Bashkaran Brown. If you want to find out more about Duncan or to contact him directly, then visit his website, www.bashkaranbrown.com. That's B H A S K A R A N Brown.com. You can also buy his book, Get Overindulgence or pre-order his new book, Real Men Quit, and we'll put all these links on the website. Duncan also referenced a few self-help books to stop drinking, The Easy Way series by Alan Carr, and The Naked Mind by Annie Grace. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like us to cover in the podcast, or if you have a story you'd like to share, then please contact me either on Twitter, at MidlifeMen, or email me at midlifemen one at gmail.com Join me next time when we talk to other midlife men about their stories and maybe you'll find that they resonate with you.